Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's really nice to see you all. We have a, a guest with us today, though I think you know him. Um, but Rabbi Klingfeld is here this morning uh, for him afternoon so that we can uh, do this class, not just with me, but, but with others. Rabbi Shapiro couldn't be here. So uh, I, I called in some help and thought that it'd be really nice for us to be able to learn with Rabbi Klickfeld um, and to be able to continue this class in the way that we have before, where it's more of a conversation and less of just one one person teaching to you uh, and, and talking through the Parsha with you. So we're going to go through the same process the same formula that we that Rabbi Shapiro and I have been doing with you and I'll have Rabbi Klickfeld begin and give us a little bit of context for the Parsha and um, and introduce the verse to us and then I will pick up with some kushio. Hi everyone good morning afternoon depending on what time zone you are connected to. Vayeshev um, right we're we're in the beginning of a story that we know well, mostly because of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, and I say that uh, with a smile because it's, it is the case that a significant portion of the Jewish and non-Jewish community know details of the Joseph story because of the musical. And had there been a, you know, a, a Broadway musical on Jacob's dream and his reunion with Esau, we'd know that better too. Uh, and if you want to hear some of that music uh, in about an hour and 45 minutes, you can join us for Kabbalah Shabbat because we're going to be doing Kabbalah Shabbat to some uh, Joseph and his Technicolor, technicolor Dreamcoat um, music. Uh, beginning of the Joseph story, um, Joseph takes up the last four parashot of the, the la- four of the last, the last four of the 12 parshas in the book of Genesis deal with the story of Joseph. He gets a lot of attention. In some ways he gets more direct attention uh, even than, um, than Avraham got. Avraham does not get four parashot on his own. And it be it continues this family dysfunction that we've seen since uh, people started to be born in the book of Genesis, with there being uh, envy of one sibling of the other, a question of does importance come via primacy, or does it come via um, what you've earned by your by your actions? Uh, and we're seeing some of the. Um, the, the complicated repercussions of Jacob's great love for Rachel, right? Jacob's great love for Rachel, which was wonderful to behold in Parshat Vayetze, complicates his relationship with his other children and the relationship between Joseph and his siblings, because that preferential treatment leads to that kind of jealousy and leads to Jacob probably turning a blind eye to the discord that he helped sow in his own family. And we see where that leads. Now, if you take a broader, broader look at it, Without all of that, the Israelites would never have gotten down to Egypt. And had they never gotten down to Egypt, they would never have left Egypt. And had they never left Egypt, we wouldn't have had revelation at Sinai. Right? So that's another complicated way of looking at this, that the Torah presents this both, this descent into Egypt, both as tragic and inevitable. Right? So therefore, the relationship between the brothers is both painful to watch, but it has to be because the narrative relies on their being stuck in Egypt and only stuck in Egypt as a result of the very, the, what, what emerges from the verses that we're going to look at. We're really looking at one half of one verse here. Um, and we could spend a, a year on it. 
Um, and you can obviously do this on nearly every verse of the Parsha. But the verse that we want to look at is um, jo Jacob, Yaakov's reaction when he first learns of Joseph's dreams and the way he's sharing that with his brothers and what it means for the family's future. So if you have a Chumash in front of you, I'm in the Eitz Chaim Chumash, page 226, 227. If you're in any Chumash, chapter 37 of the book of Genesis, of Breshit. Um, and let's start with... Um, Wait, can you repeat uh, where we are? Yes, we're in the 37th chapter of Genesis, of Breshit, pages 226, 227, 228 in the Eitz Chaim. And let's jump to verse 10, actually, after... We hear about the dreams of the stars and the sheaves of wheat. Verse 10 of chapter 37. el Aviv, he told his father, Liet Echav, and his um Rabbi Shatz, are you seeing the waiting room? Because I see people coming in. Yeah, I don't see that there are people there, so maybe you're just seeing it faster than me. Okay. Um so he so Yosef told his brother, his brothers and his father, Vayigarbo Aviv. Jacob's first reaction is to scold Joseph. What are you doing? Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a good parental reaction to scold someone for lording over their siblings or for, for, for preening about a dream that suggests he's going to lord over them. Vayomerlo, Jacob said to Joseph, What is this dream? And you can imagine that the tone of the, this might be like incredulity. Like, what, what, what are you talking about? It doesn't seem to be asking... Tell me more about this, Joseph. It more seems like an accusatory. What is the dream of Shechalamta? Do you really think we're going to come? Ani, I, your mom, and your brothers, we're going to bow down to you? Right? Of course, you could intonate it differently. You could intonate it more plainly. But the, the simple reading seems to be that Jacob initially is a little bit upset that Joseph would would dream this and then would, 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 would prance around uh, naming this dream. His brothers had envy for him, um, which is interesting because you might think that the reason why Jacob was responding this way to Joseph would be to mitigate any envy in the family, right? Jacob may, the optics of Jacob scolding his son might have been so the brothers would see Jacob uh, undermining this, uh, this superiority. But still, they envied him. Right? Whatever Jacob was trying to do was not sufficient. And all of that is leading to the three slash four words, depending on how you consider the hyphen that we want to focus on. The Aviv, his father, Jacob. Shamar, that's the key verb here. Shamar, which means to guard, to protect, to preserve, something like that. Etadavar. He guarded, protected, preserved the thing, the matter, the word. Those of you in my Rashi class know the most interesting verses are the ones whose vocabulary are simple, not hard. We know what these words mean, but what does it mean? What is the Torah telling us when the Torah says that the brothers had envy of him, that's obvious, and his father protected the thing, his father preserved the word, his father guarded the matter, What's going on? So Rabbi Shatz is going to raise the kushiot, but that in some ways is the prime kushia, kushia the, the prime difficulty. What are we trying to be 
taught by those um, verses, uh, that, that those words. Um, the JPS translation translates it plainly, but I would say uninterestingly. And his father kept the matter in mind. What does that mean? Is that, is that another way of saying that he didn't forget it? Uh, and remember that in, in the Joseph story, we're going to be playing later on with the relationship between um, not remembering and forgetting, right? Joseph, when the cupbearer comes out of prison, Parshat, um, no, Parshat Miketz ends with the Torah saying that that the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, and he also forgot him. Right, the Torah likes to say that those are two different things. To not remember and to forget are two different things. So there's a relationship between what it means to, to, to hold something in your memory. Is that all we're being told here? Or is there something else that is uh, keyed in by this root shamar? Particularly because later on in the Torah, in post-revelation Torah, Lishmor has a very heavy valence. It's to follow the commandments, Right. Um, we're going to say that in just a few hours, right? That we're supposed to remember and protect the Shabbat in one word. So maybe this is just a cigar being a cigar. Shamar means that, that he, he didn't forget it. He held on to it. Or maybe there's something heavier or more nuclear about the root shin mem ratio. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So now we are going to have you ask any questions that you might have. I'm going to share the verse on the screen because I know some of us are visual visual learners and that will be helpful. So here highlighted is the verse that we are focusing on. Um, and go ahead, raise your hand. would love to hear what your kushiot are uh, on this verse, on any of these words that, that we will be diving into. Yeah, Renee. There you go. I was just looking in the Rashi and the book that we use, and it's it's says it's saying that the father waited for the matter rather than keeping it in mind, which to me kind of seems very different connotation. Yeah. So what's the what's your kushia on that? That's a great that's a great comment. What's the kushia part? Well, if he was waiting, what was he waiting for? Okay, great. So what, how are we translating shamar from something that we believe could be guarding or protecting into waiting? And what's that, what is that connotation of waiting if it's not an exact translation of shamar? Okay, great. So what's Rashi trying to say? About and if he was guarding, what was he guarding? Saying, you know, whichever way you kind of define it. Great, great. Okay, Rebecca. Um, I guess for me, the question, the main question is, what is Hadavar? Is he keeping in mind for later or just remembering the way Joseph is behaving and that he's upset with this way of, you know, of, of this superiority? Or is he actually keeping in mind this dream? Does he understand already that it's something that will become important in the future? And that it, so the question is, what is Hadav, what is he keeping in his mind? Right, right. Davar is a very kind of bland word. It's just a thing. What is the thing that he is keeping close to him, that he is keeping guarded or protected? Yeah, Elon. I would also suggest that the matter he's keeping in mind, because it's in the same sentence, is, is he keeping in mind the fact that the brothers were angry? Yeah. 
Great. And and were they jealous? Were they angry? Right. If we translate the Hebrew exactly, it would be jealous. But we hear it as anger. Are those two synonyms? Right. Are, what are what is he? Is he trying to remember that that's a feeling that his other sons, other children, really were having for Joseph? Um, I saw Karen and Denise. So Karen and then Denise. I'm kind of uh, something's percolating in my mind about the fact that this was his favorite son. And he's uh, saying a crazy thing. Uh-huh. Like, what do you, you know, they, you know, I love you more than anybody else. What are you, nuts? I mean, you know, why am I loving you so much if this is what you're thinking? I mean, I, I don't get it. Right. So, so, so tell me what it is that you don't get. Like, what's the, what? Know, maybe I'm saying that, that Joseph, um, Jacob, Jacob doesn't get it. Like, got it, got it. Okay. It doesn't. It doesn't uh, jive with the favoritism that. He's Great, but maybe he's holding it close because he doesn't understand how his favorite son could have such a wacky idea. Um, and maybe yeah. along with what Elon was saying, how can my favorite son bring so much anger to the rest of my children? Great, Nor. Uh, sorry, Denise, and then Norm. Denise. Okay, so thinking about the word davar, um, I wonder if it's used almost like in Israel where they talk about how much of the situation and it doesn't mean just this bombing or this stabbing. It means the last 20 years of it and, mm-hmm. and all the narratives that go into those 20 years. And it almost feels like kind of like that, like, like this one incident with the report and the specifics of the dream kind of underscores what was going on between them for a really long time. And it's just kind of summed up in Hadavar because he was like so intimately familiar with it already that it was just like, yeah, it goes in that file. And then at the same time, but but Shamar, that he was like, like, you know, people in unhealthy situations, like a smoker will like protect that addiction to cigarettes. I saw that in my family, like people like you couldn't say anything about smoking. You had to talk around it. It was like a protected zone. And, and that maybe that, that these are juxtaposed because Yaakov doing that and kind of guarding that as a topic that we don't discuss contributed to it escalating that way and going on for so long. Right. Right. Both wonderful and deep questions on very simple words. Right. And that's similar to what Rabbi Klickfeld was saying that there are sometimes those simple words are what make us think even more about the context or the meaning of the, the sentence that we're talking about because as you're drushing out for us it's possible that these very simple words that we know and we hear all the time mean so much more have such a deeper a deeper meaning to to what jacob might have been doing or thinking okay norm or rachel i thought that denise and uh, elon both made really good points but with elon's in particular i wonder is it possible that Yaakov, who we know is always planning and plotting and thinking about things in advance, is it possible that he had been until this point oblivious to the jealousy and rivalry between his various sons? Um, that's my question. Right. Great. Yeah. Is it a change in him as much as it is, a, right, that there's no change in what has been happening with his sons? Is it a change now in him and that which he is seen or at least now recognizing and aware of um oh uh 
Tal, I hope it's okay that I'm sharing that you were the one who wrote this to me. Tal just wrote something very beautiful that maybe this is a foreshadowing to Shmirah, what we do with a dead body, um, that it's foreshadowing his favorite son being killed. So in some ways, the Shmirah is actually starting. Since when we look over the body, we are keeping them in mind. So similar to keeping a matter in mind. That is beautiful. Really, really beautiful. Um... Yeah, I'll just leave it with that. I have nothing else to say. It's a beautiful way of reading it. Um, any other comments, questions, thoughts? I can't see everybody, so you have to raise your, raise your digital hand if you have another thing to say. Okay. Um, I will kick it back over to Rabbi Kleefeld. That was great. Many more questions were posed than, than we could possibly answer comprehensively. And it's a good thing, like, you know, in science, it's a good thing to be innovative. In Torah study, it's a good thing when when you can connect your own way of thinking about something to our spiritual ancestors, right? There's this phrase, Baruch Shakivanti or Baruch Shakivanta, like, well done that you're on the same wavelength as the Talmud or Rashi or some Hasidic Rebbe. So a lot of the things that were, that were, that were, a lot of the questions that were raised um, in this group um, jive with the questions that are bothering some of the commentators. I heard three basic, basic categories of, of, of questions, and some of those questions had implied answers in them uh, from what you all said. This is, not, this is not everything you said, but three basic ways of looking at it. One was that um, Yaakov, Yaakov, the extent to which Yaakov was Shomer Tadavar, he, um, he, he kind of kept it in mind lest this information about the relationship between his sons become important later. That was one category, but, but, or the neutral feeling about it. A second category of things that you said were that he liked this prophecy. He had no problem. And so he, he held on to it. He, he, he preserved it. He, he thought, he thought that, that, that wouldn't be a terrible future for his family if the brothers, and even he bowed down to Yosef. And the third category I heard was, and I think, is this may have been, um, I forgot who said it, so I won't try to remember who said it, that it was an unhealthy dynamic and Yaakov contributed to that lack of health by preserving something that ought not to have been preserved. Shamara tadavar, he let it be. But this ends up reading that verse as a critique of Yaakov. So the, the, it's, a, it's a critique of Yosef, but it's a critique of Yaakov for not correcting Yosef more strongly. Yes, he scolded the brother, uh, Joseph, but that did not appease the brothers. They were still rather jealous. And Yaakov let it be. He, can, he contributed to this enduring. Um, and anyone who thinks about family systems knows how, how problematic this can be when something is allowed to fester. And when the person in authority, a parent in this particular situation, does not do the hard work of naming and getting out of the system the toxicity or the cancer. So those are three base, basic categories of, of answers that I heard. Does someone want to say something? I was going to say that it, it's interesting that when you and I were talking about this verse, that the thing that I, that I immediately thought of was also how he doesn't respond to the rape of Dina, right? Or the assault or whatever we, we want to call it, which happened before, but that there's some, there's some part of Jacob that is not... He's not the kind of guy that's like standing up and ready to to make a motion about how things are happening in his family. He kind of, in both of these cases, 
is sitting back and just holding on to that which has occurred. And in both cases, it leads to not destruction in a, in a physical way, but, but familial destruction and separation. Yeah. So let me attach some of those crucio to some of the traditional commentaries. So in the category of the, of the ways of looking at this verse that say that he, 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 he held on to this data point, he held on to this memory and it was going to play a part later on in the story. Radak, Rabbi David Kimchi, uh, from Provence in the middle, in the medieval time, he said something very similar. He says, Yaakov was upset with his son, Yosef, but he, he didn't, he didn't do anything active to kind of, uh, end the way Yosef was, was interacting with his brothers, but he, he, he kept it in mind. This prophecy might come to pass. And if it's going to come to pass, then J- Jacob, the father, has to prepare for it, has to figure out what his role is going to be in that scene and what impact it might have on him and his children if this prophecy is going to happen. So he didn't try to stop it. He wasn't applauding it. Redox says, literally, he remembered it. This is a good thing to, to put in my, in my memory bank, lest it become significant later on. Rashbam who's Rashi's grandson, gives an, a yet more intensive version of that explanation. Rashbam says the reason why we, the reader, are being told this, this piece of information, like, is it significant that Jacob shamard the Devar, or is it significant that we know that Jacob shamard the Devar? And those are two different questions, right? You can ask the question from within the story. You can also ask the question about the impact of this information on us, the reader. And Rashbam reads it more in the second category. He says, reader, remember this. We know what's going to happen. Joseph's going to go down into the pit and then into prison, and then he's going to have that role in Egypt, and then Jacob's going to unwittingly send his, the rest of the sons down there to get more food, and through a back and forth, eventually Joseph's going to reveal himself to his brothers. The brothers are going to go back to Jacob, and they're going to say to Jacob, your son Joseph is alive. Anyone remember what Jacob's first reaction is when the brothers say, Dad, guess what? Joseph's alive. Anyone remember? Look at chapter 45 of Genesis, verse 26. If you're in the Eitz Chaim Chumash, it is uh, page 279. Starting with verse 25. Vayalumi Mitzrayim. The brothers went up from Egypt after re- having Joseph's identity revealed to them. Vayavo Eretz Canaan, they went to the land of Canaan. El Yaakov Abihem, to Jacob, their father. Vayagidulo, they told him. Lamor, this is what they said. Od Yosef Chai, Joseph, the one whom we told you was torn up, he's alive. Vechihum Moshe Eretz Mitzrayim. And not only that, right? it's like he's alive and not he's alive, he's thriving. He's the vice president of Egypt. And Jacob's initial reaction is libo. His heart like melted away, but doesn't seem to be that he melted away out of, um, in the sense that he realized he was going to see his son. It melted in that it, 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 it couldn't even deal with the information. He did not believe them. So Rashbam says to us, the reader, based on our verse, remember what's going to happen coming up. Jacob's initial reaction to being told that Yosef is alive is he doesn't believe them. He can't compute. He saw the bloody 
uh, coat. He knows that Joseph is dead. Then verse 27, the brothers kept speaking to their father. At Koldi Yosef, all the words that Joseph had said, Asher Diber, Alehem, Bayarat Agalot. Then Jacob looked around and looked at the scene. Said, wait a second. Hmm. Look at all these chariots. Asher Shalach Yosef, that somebody clearly sent up to Canaan with, with my sons. There's got to be a reason for that. Lasetoto, to, to bring me down to Egypt. This can't just be a coincidence. Vatachi Ruach Yaakov Abihem. And all of a sudden, the spirit of Jacob. Their father revivified by Yomer Yisrael, Yisrael, Jacob said, Rav od Yosef Benichai. I guess my son really is still alive. Okay, Rashbam says that's the end of the shaggy dog story, as it were. When Jacob in our scene was Shomerat Hadavar, somewhere deep into the recesses of his mind, he put this kernel. Some point in the future, the Holy Spirit has told my son that there'll be a moment where all of us will bow down to him. And then what happens? His son dies and, you know, he forgets about it, but it's in his unconscious. It's in as deep in his unconscious. So his first reaction to hearing that Joseph's alive is, I can't believe it. But once he sees the entourage, that thing that he remembered in our verse, it came back up. It got reawakened. <laughs> this, this reminds me of um, this interesting halachic concept, a Jewish legal concept regarding chametz on Pesach. Chametz on Pesach has in some ways a more stringent rule than with respect, than, than treif during the year. Treif during the year or milchiks into fleishiks or fleishiks into milchiks, if it is nullified within one part to 60, I think some of you are aware of that, of that rule, right? If, if you accidentally, not intentionally, right? I remember when I first learned this rule, I'm like, does that mean I can put a very, 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 very small piece of cheese on a very, 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 very big hamburger? And as long as it's less than one sixtieth, I have my cheeseburger. The answer is no. But in certain situations, if accidentally it gets, it gets mixed in, um, then it gets nullified. And then the entire substance is permissible going forward. Not true for chametz in most situations. Chametz has a category called chozer v'neor. It returns and gets reawakened. Chametz that was nullified in a ratio of one to one to sixtieth. In you know, I don't know, a piece of bread falls into a soup. If more bread falls into it afterwards, the original amount gets reawakened and gets part of the mathematical formula to determine if it's nullified or not, which is not the case for treif or milchik and deflation. Why am I mentioning that here? There's a long way of describing Rashbam, which is Rashi's uh, uh, grandson, that Jacob had a memory. It got lost. Right? Think, of, think of something that you once knew and you forgot. But then something triggers the memory back. So where was it in between? You hadn't completely forgotten it. It, it, was, it, was, it was somewhere in a, in a neuron firing, but something reawakened it. So when Yaakov shomered the Davar, he put this away deep in his consciousness because something told him later on this is going to be important information. And without that, according to Rashbam, he would not have believed that Jacob was still alive, Joseph was still alive. That's one way, one of the categories of reading, um, reading the scene. But let's move from Ra the Radak and Rashbam to Rashi, whom, I, whom uh, Rene mentioned before. So this is Rashbam's grandfather. Rashi is of the category, not that he held on to this knowledge kind of in, in, in a wait, wait and see this information might be useful in the future, but he waited for it expectantly. And you're right, Rashi is reading the verb lishmor to mean not to preserve, not to protect, 
not to guard, but to anticipate. That is a much less common use of the root, but it exists. Those of you who've been coming to Daily Minion know that we've been saying Psalm 130 in the mornings, uh, every day before we begin Shacharit. And there's a verse in Psalm 130, My soul, with respect to God, it's, it's a very um, truncated phrase. Waits more expectantly for God than the shomrim, than those who are awaiting the dawn, wait for the dawn. So shomrim laboker is not protecting the dawn or preserving the dawn or guarding the dawn, but waiting for it. Lishmor as to wait. So the aviv shamara tadavar means, according to Rashi, yeah, he did chew out Yosef for being so pompous. But then Yaakov said, I'm going to wait for this to happen. This, this is how it should be. This is my favorite son. He should lord over his brothers. I don't even care if he lords over me. And there's a connect, there's a, 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 another halacha connection in there. Um, Sforno, who's an Italian commentator in the 16th century, uh, comments on Rashi's commentary, and Sforno brings in a text from the Talmud in Tractate Sanhedrin, page 105. And I'll read you the quote from the um, from the Talmud. Uh, Rabbi Yossi Bar Choni, Rabbi Yossi, the son of Choni, said, "Bechol Adam mitkane, it's natural to have envy of just about any person if they're in a situation that's better than you." except for your child, and your student. So what this rabbi is saying, either, either um, kind of dispositively or psychologically, it's normal, I don't know if he's saying it's, it's a good idea, but it's normal to have envy of just by anyone, but parents don't envy their children and teachers don't envy their students. Why? Because if your child does something that you are not able to do, you applaud, you have nachas. Right? They may have yichas, but you have nachas. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell does a great podcast on the relationship between nachas and yichas as um, y- Yiddish pride going in two opposite directions. And if a, if a teacher sees a student, you know, arrive at, um, at, at, at realizations or research or achievements that the teacher didn't, hopefully the teacher doesn't have envy of the student. The teacher is beaming with pride because the student outclassed or outdid them, right? So how does that relate to this scene? The brothers can have envy of the image of Joseph being in charge of them. Yaakov, no envy. My son's going to be a great leader and we're going to bow down to him. Okay, sounds fine with me. So Rashi is in the category of those who think that Yaakov shomering the davar with a smile on his face. The others were with a question. I wonder if this is important information to know. Rashi's like, wow, I believe that this prophecy is going to come, and I'm looking forward to it. Let me pause here because that was a lot before we look into some other um, stuff. Rabbi Schatz, do you want to comment? or I don't yeah, know what to no, I, will, I will comment. I will also mention that for those of you who are, who are with Rabbi Shapiro and I usually uh, every week, you know that sometimes – Rabbi Shapiro will bring a text and I'll say, great, that was exactly the text that I was going to bring. So Radak and that piece from the Talmud were the two pieces that I, <laughs> that I also was going to bring. Um, and the, the Radak piece to me, the one thing that really stuck out was the fact that Radak 
but he he kind of talks a little bit more about the jealousy anger piece that that even though he was angry right and he he knew that there could have been something to come from this dream that would provide angst or worry for him and for his family he still held on to it and that that seems very important that even if there are things that might be that might bother us or that might seem to foreshadow something that could actually bring suris speaking of yiddish phrases bring suris to our lives that that you still hold on to it because as i heard last night um you know one of the beauties of being on everyone being on zoom is that especially on the first night of hanukkah i got to see so many different places doing different things for hanukkah and one of my friends uh rabbi ezra balzer it works in the base movement and he works in chicago and they were doing like a round table thing and one of the one of the other base rabbis mentioned that in a different part of our jacob story when he wrestles with the angel that one of the things that she's often thought about is how we don't know exactly what jacob wrestled with was it a guy? Was it Asaph? Was it himself? Was it an angel? We don't really know. And Rabbi Shapiro and I talked about that in a different week. But the thing that we do know is that it impacts Jacob's forward thinking, right? It impacts who he is moving forward. It also impacts him physically. It literally changes how he walks. And it also makes him hold on to something. So just like in the middle of the night, if you think of something and you either write it down or you have a dream that stays with you all day as something that you're just pondering over, that you hold on to it. And in Jacob's case, in, the, in his dream, he was changed, not for the better, and yet saw God in that moment. And so that's what this Radak piece kind of reminds me of, that that you hold on to things no matter if they are going to do you well or do you harm, I think is is um, maybe a little too extreme, but do you not as well, right? Do you the opposite of, of what might be positive, but that you hold on to it. And so all of these commentators who are talking about what could Jacob have meant, what was he holding on to, it almost doesn't matter because he held on to it. And it somehow affected him and his children as he moved forward. The, there was another piece that I found, and, and maybe Rabbi Clickfold will say that he also found this. We can just keep going back and forth that way. Um, that comes from Brashit Rabba. Did you find this part, piece? You did? Okay, okay great. <laughs> um, all right, so there's a piece in Brashit Rabba, and I'm going to read it um, in the English just so that uh, we can all understand it for the sake of time. It says... That he, they're commenting on this part of the verse that he that Jacob kept a matter in mind is how they translate it. Rabbi Levi said, Jacob took a pen and recorded the day, the hour, and the place. Right, so he not only remembered it, but he but he did an action to make sure that it was remembered. He wrote it down. He kept it. Rabbiya interpreted, and Joseph's brothers envied him, but Jacob's. Um, divine spirit said, keep, which we assume is God, keep the matter in mind because the matter will be fulfilled. Rabbi Levi said in the name of Rabbi Chama Bar Hanina, Rabbi Chama Bar Hanina, 
Jacob did indeed foresee these events impending. And Jacob said, if my ledger has been scrutinized, what can I do? So Rabbi Levi suggests that Jacob not only recognizes something noteworthy, he acts upon it. He writes it down and he commits it to memory. So in this, what Breshit Rabbah is, is telling us is that he knew that this was something that was going to affect the way in which his story turned out. And as Rabbi Klickfeld mentioned and then read to us later on in the Parsha, it's very clear that the dream comes to bear, but also this idea of the brothers being envious, but needing Joseph. Turns out in the end, we realize that they need one another to be able to go on. They need Joseph to get out of the hunger that they are in. So this Shamarat HaDavar for me um, it is, is, a, is a very interesting piece that I, I want to believe that Jacob did something, that he didn't just remember it in his brain and think, oh, that, that's important. But he, that he did something about it, whether he wrote it down or he told it to someone, uh, that it's something that he really needed to keep in his heart to allow him, number one, as Tal mentioned, to be able to get through the moments that were going to be difficult of imagining that Joseph was no longer part of the family, that he was dead, but that also he needed it to be able to reconcile those moments that through the jealousy they still were a family that Joseph was going to help reunite. Those are my thoughts thus far. Let's open it up. And I'm going to need to go a little bit uh, before it's over because I'm uh, doing a meditation that I have to start on a different Zoom channel. But let's open it up to some questions and comments. And I have one final text that I want to share with the group. Renee? I'm thinking of like if of as a parent, if you know that your kid does something wrong or has a particular beha- pattern of behaviors... Uh-huh. So you don't necessarily hold it against him, but you kind of keep it in the back of your mind and you wonder if the next time you're in that same situation, if it's going to happen again. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's kind of more what, what he, what Jacob did. He kind of, you know, knew that Joseph had done wrong and maybe he's going to do wrong again, maybe not. And he kind of just kept it there in the back of his heart. Well, let's see what, what'll happen. I, I think it's interesting to note, and this is true of this verse and, oh, I don't know, every other verse, that when it comes to the different possible ways to interpret what a word means, part of it we might be interpreting based on our sense of etymology and linguistics, and part of it based on what we want the scene to show, right? So what what what, what kind of a Jacob do we want to appear in this scene? And that will depend on what we think he should have done in response to this, this jealousy in his family. Do we want to see Jacob as um, like shamaring at Hadavar in the sense that he, he tried to keep the matter in check because we, we want to see him as taking some responsibility. Do we want to see Jacob uh, as someone who's learned his lesson from the experience he had with Esav or do we, are we instinctually seeing Jacob as someone who has not, move past that. And so we, we, we therefore read the scene as him accepting this. Shamar Tadabari, he, he, he preserved like in, in amber, like as a showpiece, 
what this prophecy was going to be because it it it, seemed, it sounded sounded right for him. So some of that is based on what we think the word lishmor means. Some of it is based on what we think a role of a parent is and whether we think positively or negatively about Jacob, right? In this the, the the thing that I keep coming back to is the way that we talk about shamor et yom hashabbat lekocho, right? We talk about keeping Shabbat and often that comes with action, whether actions not to do or actions to do. And and when I think of moments in my life where I have recognized something, whether about myself or about others, that I can't act upon in that moment, but I know that it's something that will come back to me. Temple Beth Am is a great example, right? When I was an intern at Temple Beth Am, I knew this was a community that I felt connected to, but there was nothing I could do about it while I, while I was an intern, right? I, I knew that I felt connected but I went on to other things and I kept that in my mind as something to act on. And I wonder if Jacob is the kind of character based on, as I brought before with, with his daughter's incident, the kind of, kind of character and similar, it's interesting, my brother Jacob is this way also, that you, you hold onto things in your mind to think them over so much so, so that when you are acting on them, whether that's to tell your child to, to behave a different way, Renee, in your in your example, or to just at least watch their behavior to make sure that it goes in the in the quote correct way, um, that you that you really need to have it in your mind, but then only act upon it when it's necessary. And so maybe that part that Rabbi Klickfeld brought that comes at the end of the story is the arc of this, that the Shamar started it, but that's the end, that he then comes back to life because he realizes all the pieces of the puzzle have now reconnected. Let me offer a last little piece for you to all to chew on, and then you can continue this um, for a few more minutes after I leave the leave the uh, the screen. Um, one of the things that I love about these investigations uh, into, into words and verses in the Torah um, is that it takes you to places that are both kind of somewhat predictable and totally unpredictable, both in terms of storyline uh, and in terms of your just understanding of the tradition. And well before the internet, in a way that actually technologically and, 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 and uh, epistemologically is mind-boggling, Jewish texts were the original hyperlinks, like already in the 15th century. Like you, 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 you had a piece of Talmud open and on the page you had the linkages to the to other places in the canon where you could go and follow up that 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 piece of material. I remember when I spent a semester um, in yeshiva in college, how amazed I was that, um, and this is before the internet was really a, a thing, so I couldn't even put it into that context. That all, all the places you were sent to from the core page, and if you had a big enough library, you you were just literally swimming and swimming and swimming in this endless sea. So the internet makes it even more amazing. But the fact that the internet makes it amazing reinforces how amazing it was pre-internet. Um, now with with Safari and other places, you can basically see where any verse in the Torah was ever quoted by any published rabbi in history, right? So um, it's not just opening up, you know, like a, a book like I teach from the Rashi class where it has six commentaries on the page, you know, did, did, did a, a, a sage in Baghdad of the 19th century ever make a commentary on this verse? And, and the reason why I gave that example is, yes, he did, 
Okay, so I want to I want to share with you something by um, a rabbi named the Ben the Ben Ish Chai. His name was Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad. He lived in the 19th century into the early 20th century. He's actually not commenting on our verse. He's commenting on a different verse, but he brings our verse as a proof text. What verse is he commenting on? He's commenting commenting on the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy. So if you have a chumash. Look, open up to Deuteronomy Dvarim, chapter 7, verse 11. In the Eitz Chaim, it's page uh, 1031. Um, it's the last verse of Parshat Re'eh. One of many, many, many places of the root Lishmor is used post-revelation, post-Mount uh, Sinai, to refer to our relationship with the commandments. Veshamarta et ha-mitzvah. Torah says, you should shomer, our, our verb, the mitzvah, the commandment, v'yetachukim, and all of the rules, v'yetamishpatim, and all the judgments, asher anochi mitzavcha hayom, that I command you today, lasotam, to do them all. One of many places where the Torah says something similar to that. The Ben Ishchai, commenting on that, says three things. Sorry, two things. The first thing he says is this refers to three different types of commandments. Um, commandments are divided into several different subcategories. You can think of them as the positive commandments and the negative commandments. One way of thinking of them are chukim, laws that don't make any sense. The only reason we do them is because God tells us to do them, like shatnez or not wearing certain uh, combinations of clothing. The mishpatim, the laws that make sense, like a- any any jurisprudential um, system would have put something like that, that into place. We didn't need God to tell us not to do it, like not to murder, not to steal. But when we do it, we do it as a Jewish value, not just as a civic value. And what the Ben Ishchai calls mitzvah here, like mitzvah, I would say lowercase mem, not capital mem. It's like mitzvah as a as a subcategory of mitzvah, which are those things in the in between, right? They make some sense, but but they're not as as kind of inane as the as the as, as shatnez. But we wouldn't necessarily have come up with them unless God had told them told us to do them. Okay, that's the first thing he says in this verse. The second thing he says is, this verse seems to be saying that it's your individual, because this is Vishamarta in the singular. It's your individual obligation to observe every single one of these commandments. And the Benish Chai says, but that's impossible, because everybody knows that even though we like to quote Taryag, Taryag, which is the numerical way of refer or the the letter-based way of referring to the 613 commandments of the Torah, even though we talk about, you know, I'm, this, this person is so from, they're so religious, they do taryag mitzvot, they fulfill all 613 commandments. No one can, because some of the commandments specifically refer to kohanim. And if you're not a kohen, you can't do that commandment. And some commandments are specifically addressed to men, and some are specifically addressed to women, and some can only be done in the land of Israel. So, so no one should even suggest that they're individually obligated to all 613 commandments. So therefore, what does this verse mean? The Ben Ishchai said, I'll tell you what it means. Go back to Jacob, because when it says, V'yakov shamar et hadavar, what it meant was, Jacob sat, this is similar to Rashi, and just wondered and waited for this opportunity to materialize, where he'd be able to see his son in such power. And the the like the the ruminating on it, the waiting for it had material value. His sitting there imagining that one day Joseph would be in a position of such prominence was itself a um, um, a stabilizing part of of Jacob's life. Maybe it didn't sustain him 
after he found out that um, that Joseph had apparently died. And what it means in this verse that Ben Ishchai says, if you're the type of Jew who wishes you could perform more mitzvot than you can, who wish that more opportunities would come your way to be able to perform mitzvot. If you're not a Kohen, but you wish you woke up tomorrow as a Kohen so you could do the Kohen mitzvot. If you don't live in the land of Israel, he was in Baghdad, but you fantasize that tomorrow you'll be in the land of Israel and you can fulfill the commandments that you can't do today, you get credit, he says, for having done them all. Because since no one can do them all, what we're valorizing here is the ache to do them all. Because the ache to do them all is the shmirah here. Shmirah not as protection, Shmirah as waiting and hoping for something that might come in the future. So when I read that commentary, it's not that I learned so much about the Jacob story. It's I learned something about what religious desire is, right? And when you're living in a system that has a lot of thou shalt nots, it's it could be um, it would make sense for us to wish that there were fewer restrictions on our behavior when it comes to things that we can or cannot do on Shabbat or holidays or Pesach. But the Ben Ishchai saying is, what is a religious person? A religious person who wants more opportunities to serve God, who wants more opportunities to show fidelity, who wants more opportunities to feel bound and obligated. And I would say this is now my commentary on the Ben Ishchai. That's true of our relationship with God and it's true of our relationship with one another. Sometimes we understandably fantasize about having fewer duties, fewer kids to clean up after in our home, fewer emails to respond to, fewer moments where we're claimed by someone else rather than being able to be fully liberated as ourselves. And the Ben Ishchai is asking us to think about a higher way of living, of wanting more obligations, more responsibilities, more being owned and claimed for sacred purposes, and leash more of that, to wait for that, to hope for that, and even to pray for that. I'll end here and wish you all Shabbat Shalom, but please continue with Rabbi Shatz. And if you want, in six minutes to come meditate, uh, you can join me on that Zoom. Uh, you can find that on the website. Shabbat Shalom. Chagorim Sameach. Great to be, um, great to crash this party. Chanukah Sameach. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for being here. Okay, so I have one last text, but I, um, I, oh, where did I go? Hold on one second. I can only see Renee now, so give me one second. Um, okay. Um, all right. So I, I would love to hear other questions if people have them, then I'm going to give us a last, a last source that actually is going to connect us to Hanukkah. So you'll get Parsha and Hanukkah all together before you leave today. But any other questions about this verse, about the, about the different commentaries that you've heard? Any comments? You don't they have to be questions. No, nothing. Okay. All right. Great. <laughs> um, okay. Oh, hi, Bonnie. Um, so I'm going to give us a last, a last text. And then if you want to say anything about that, you can. Uh, so this is from a Hasidic teaching. And the Hasidic teaching is bringing in this idea of keeping something close because there's always the potential for it to have more. So it kind of goes along the idea of Jacob with the waiting, right? Waiting for something to come of this or to come of Joseph. But it also goes with the idea of holding something close to you because if you hold it as close to you as long as you can, it then might turn into something that can help you or that can move things forward for you, depending on if it's a dream 
or some kind of goal that you might have, that the longer you hold on to it and ruminate on it, the easier it will be once it's time for you to act upon it. So this is the Hasidic teaching. The oil of Hanukkah has the potential for miraculous, sorry, the potential for miraculousness always existed within that oil, waiting to be revealed by God at the right time. Okay, so the Hasidic understanding of the oil of Hanukkah, I'm going to read it again, the potential for miraculousness always existed within that oil, waiting to be revealed by God at the right time. So too with people within whom the miraculous always exists. The only question is when and where it will come to light. So holding on to this thing, whether waiting or just keeping it down on a notepad for the right time in the right place, was Jacob believing in his son, but I would extend it even to believing in his family to know that something better could come than just this jealousy, right? Because as Elon pointed out at the beginning, maybe this jealousy is just, this is the first time that we're really recognizing that there's jealousy, that there's hatred for Joseph. And all of a sudden, Jacob's coming to that. And so he's holding that close to a time when hopefully that would go away. But like the oil, which in our story obviously lasted eight days, That oil always had the potential to do something that was going to be great. But it was only until the people needed it and put it to use that it had the ability to be a miracle. And so Jacob had to hold on to this idea of Joseph because he needed for him to be great. He needed for him to be able to bring this family back together and to be able to allow for that miracle, if we want to go with the metaphor of Hanukkah, to ignite at the time that it was necessary, which is when the family needs him again and goes to him and says, I need for you to bring me something that is going to allow us to live, to sustain ourselves as a family. So I, I will close on that note and would love to hear if there are comments on it. Um, it's always interesting, Rabbi Klickfeld and I were talking about this before we met, it's always interesting to bring two very different opinions and two very different outlooks on things, but then at the end, kind of see how the two come together, right? He started off by talking about how Shamor was this type of holding on to it, but waiting and not sure what was going to come of it. Whereas I jumped to the conclusion of Jacob never does anything and he should, he should have been more active from the get go. Um, so it's nice that those two come together to allow us to feel as though Jacob really knew that there was going to be something greater for his family and for Joseph. Um, and so too with Hanukkah, I hope that the light in growing that light in your home, that you have the ability to see how that, how that grows for you and allows you to think about the lights that can be ignited even when Hanukkah has ended. So Chag Sameach, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Have any comments? Um, would love to hear them. If not, have a great holiday and I will see you, I'm sure, on Zoom over Shabbat. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.